0: Welcome back to The Compass, the sermon-based podcast ministry of Calvary Baptist Church of Fayetteville, Arkansas. We're thrilled that you've chosen to download and listen as we continue our journey through God's Word. Now, over the past few weeks, we've been in a series entitled Worship Matters, and Pastor Kirk will be continuing that today. But if you're looking for a church home, a place that you can connect with other believers and serve and learn and grow, we'd love to have you at Calvary Baptist Church. We're located at 1410 North Porter Road in Fayetteville, Arkansas, and you can find out more information at calvaryfayetteville.com. If you have questions, call us at 479-442-4634, or email us at info at calvaryfayetteville.com. Today's message is found in Isaiah six and Revelation one and two, as pastor Kurt talks about the pattern for worship. Let's listen together.
1: Isaiah 6 and Revelation 1. And now that you've made yourself good and comfortable and settled in and found our passages, our text for today, stand with me while we read these words together. Our theme, our passage, key passage for uh, this series of messages from John chapter 4. I believe it's going, there it is. Kind of gave me pause for a moment. Let's read this out loud together, would you? But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth and truth. Thank you. You may be seated. Those are the words of Jesus speaking to the Samaritan woman who was inquiring about the right place to worship. And Jesus is saying to her, it's not so much about a place, it's about a person. It's about me. And if you want to worship God in a way that God approves, in a way that God accepts, you must worship in spirit. That means spirit-initiated worship, meaning that only true Christians, born-again Christians who have the Spirit of God inside, spirit-initiated worship that impacts the whole of life, spirit, soul, body. It is definitely an emotional experience, but it's not just an emotional experience. It is spirit and Truth. Well, we've talked about the priority of worship, that worship is the most important thing in your life, the most important. We've talked about the path to true worship, that sometimes on our life journey, God takes us through painful and difficult experiences, disappointments, heartaches, difficulties, But these are not intended to make us bitter. They're intended to make us better. And that the painful journey of life can deepen and enrich our worship. It tends to chip away all of our sin sickness. It tends to uh, turn rebels into true worshipers that the pathway to worship oftentimes involves the difficulties you and I are called to walk through. And then we talked last week about the perspective of worship. That worship is not a fearful thing like in the Old Testament. It's not a frustrating uh, experience knowing that no matter what I offer to God today, it'll never be enough. I'll have to offer to him again tomorrow to somehow make atonement for my sin. That it's not a fruitless experience. It is a joyous celebration Of what Christ has already done for us. Once for all. Offering himself as a sacrifice for our sins. And that when we as New Testament Christians worship. In Mount Zion worship as Hebrews 12 calls it. We are joining with the saints in in glory. Already in the presence of God. We are joining in with the angels of heaven. In joyous gathering As we exalt the Lord. It's the most important hour every single week. I'll say it again. This time on the Lord's day. Is the most important hour. And I know I need to be more accurate. Hour and 15 minutes. (laughs) Of your week. It should be that. And our attitude towards it. And our loyalty to it should reflect that. Well, next Sunday, we're going to conclude this series with the most important message of all. And I hope you'll make now plans to be here, to invite others to come with you, to look around you and see who is normally here but missing today. And you'll call them and tell them you need to be here next Sunday because we're going to talk about the person we worship The person we worship. But today, I feel like it's important that we take a little uh, journey into and focus on what I've called the pattern of worship. The pattern of worship. Now, our text in Isaiah 6 and Revelation chapter 1, two passages that I believe are two of the most amazing scenes of worship to be found in all of the Bible. Now, the Bible is full of scenes of worship, but I believe these two, for my opinion, for my uh, perspective, that these two stand in many ways above all of the rest. And I think they are something that we can learn from today. But I want to begin by asking, before we get to our text, a question. Actually, two questions. Why do we do... What we do in our corporate worship gathering. Why do we do church the way we do church when we gather for worship on Sunday? Where do we get our liturgy, our form of worship? But that's all the word liturgy is. I know that as Baptists, we don't think of ourselves as being liturgical meaning we don't think of ourselves as being extremely formal. We don't think of ourselves as what's sometimes called high church. Very strict liturgy and form and order that is the same Sunday in Sunday out. But I want to suggest to you that the most informal church you have ever been a part of. It. I want you to know I grew up missionary Baptist. I grew up experiencing some very informal church. Now, that would have gotten a chuckle if you had grown up the same way and really got what I just said. I've grown up in church, not so much my home church, but I've been in churches where the Sunday school teacher gets up out of the pew in the auditorium and walks to the front with his Sunday school book rolled up in his hip pocket. And he stands up And he reads that lesson and he may say a couple of things about it. And that was what Sundays, that's what discipleship looked like in those churches. Or where we got together for worship and the song leader said, Does anybody have a favorite you want to suggest today? And so just randomly on the spot, no rehearsal, no practice, no thought given. Hey, how about number 94? Okay, let's sing number 94. And that sticks in my mind because if you ever sang out of the little brown soft cover favorite songs and hymns, that's a song called On the Jericho Road. And it has a fun bass line if you can sing it. And so we worshiped in that way. And I'm not going to say that, that God didn't in some way use it, but I'm going to tell you, it, it, he really showed his power when he did use it. <laughs> I don't mean to be disrespectful, but in a lot of Baptist churches, God has to work real hard to redeem a worship service. But in spite of all of that, people get saved. People get called to preach, and God does good things. But I want to suggest to you that every church that seeks to worship the Lord is a liturgical church. We all have our form, whether it's very random or what. Now, why do we do what we do in our corporate worship gathering? I want to suggest to you that at least speaking for Calvary, why we do what we do, is because it has been prescribed by Scripture. It has been prescribed by the New Testament in particular. That our liturgy, our form, our order of worship is designed and defined by the Word of God. For instance, in the New Testament, When you study it, though the Bible does not prescribe any liturgy, you cannot find anywhere in the Bible that word. You cannot find anything described as an order of worship. But instead, what God does give us, he gives us some ingredients that a worship service should include. And we find this by reading uh, specifically Acts and the Epistles, the New Testament churches we know it today. And what do we find? We find these things. That a worship service should include prayer and praise. Would you amen that? Would you agree? Prayer and praise. That it involves preaching and teaching. Preaching and teaching. And I'm not sure what the difference between those two are. Are is. Whichever is the proper word. I'm not sure if you've got to yell and, and sweat and work up a lather for it to be preaching. That's kind of the way we used to think of it. And that if a guy talks in a normal voice, well, that was just teaching. But Either way, the Word of God needs to be opened and explained. That there is the observance of ordinances, baptism, and communion. In some churches, those things are seen every single week. We were supposed to have baptism today, but because of some family illness, the people being baptized uh, uh, were not able, but next Sunday we get to see the ordinance of baptism. What a blessing that is. Some churches, communion is every single week. Now, what Paul said to the Corinthians was, as often as you do this, so it seems to leave some latitude for how often, but, but sometimes, some way, the observance of the ordinances, that there should be fellowship and edification. It's not a private worship service for you. It's not all about you. It's about you as a part of the body of Christ. This is corporate worship. Now, we know that in our personal and private lives that, that we do have our personal and private worship, that all of life should be done to the glory of God, that all of life should be in worship of the Lord, even when we work, go to school, and so on. But when we come together in this time, there should be fellowship and edification, that, that worship isn't about you, And it's not just you as individuals offering worship to God, but that as you worship God alongside your brothers and sisters, it should be to help fulfill the one another's and the edification and building up of one another. That's why it's okay when we sing uh, Christ our hope in life and death and there's an energy in that song and a feeling in that song it's okay to look somewhere besides a peer. Look at your neighbor and agree with them with a nod as you sing that song because you're edifying and encouraging one another. That our worship involves evangelism and discipleship evangelism, and discipleship. And understand that evangelism, yes, is to be done day to day and and week to week out there in the marketplace and the workplace and the home place. But understand that this is evangelism here too. And discipleship, training, and all of these are to be observed on the Lord's day. The Lord has specified that. It doesn't mean we can't have worship services other days, but we are told that on the first day of the week, set aside this time and set aside your tithes and offerings and set aside uh, the first day of the week. Why? Because we're celebrating the resurrection of our Savior, not just on Resurrection Sunday or Easter Sunday, But every single week. So those elements, those things, the New Testament talks about, and it says that your worship should include this. Now, I want to give you a a word that I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, and don't let it disturb you. It's not a disturbing word. It's not found in the New Testament, but down through the history of the church, To do these things on the Lord's Day has come to be called, or was called, the regulative principle. What is the regulative principle? Well, up to about the 1500s, the 16th century, understand that the primary expression of Christianity in the world was the Catholic Church. The universal Catholic Church. And it had become very corrupt. And worship was very corrupt. And many things added to that worship that it was just blatant idolatry. And there came along men and women who said, this is not what we find in the scriptures. And they began to seek to reform the church and to call the church back to a scriptural practices. And they were not intending to start other denominations or other churches. They were trying to reform a corrupt church. But they were unsuccessful in doing so. So it led then in the birth of some other expressions of the Lord's church, even denominations that we would see today and know today as Presbyterian, Lutheran, Baptist, and others that basically said, this is the worship of the New Testament, not what we've been practicing and experiencing over here in the Catholic Church. Understand, if you don't like the Reformation, or if you were against the Reformation, or if you say, that doesn't include me, understand, you would be sitting here today, if you were in a worship service, this would be a Catholic Church, it would be in Latin, you would not know what's being done, and you could not hold the Word of God in your hand and in your lap. So praise God that there were those several hundred years ago, 500 years ago, that that said they called the church back to truth. And as a result of that, the Word of God now was printed and translated into English where we could read the Bible for ourselves and you can hold it and you can worship. Pastor David Schrock says this, Every time believers assemble in God's name that's what we're doing here today every time we participate in a heavenly reality we are we are not only doing things scriptural way but we are joining with the reality of worship in heaven in some mystical way that only God understands and only God can see we are joining with the angels and the saints in glory in the worship of God He goes on to say, So, so, we should order our assemblies by the divine pattern that God has given. Since we today are joining in a heavenly reality, then worship is not up to you and me to decide how we do it. The pattern is not based on your preference. It is to include and to be a part of this right here. And there should be a story, a gospel story, taught in every worship service from beginning to end. Understand, follow me, and let's look at this as it really is. We are not free to get creative in how we worship God. Now, I want you to know, I'm convicted about that. Because I have pastored and been on staff in some great churches, some wonderful church families. But in two or three of those churches, very good churches, very large churches, very progressive churches, very exciting churches, we had creative teams People who took the subject of the message and weeks ahead of time planned and prepared how to creatively present that truth, that message in different ways. That seemed like such a great idea. The intention was noble and pure. The intention was to in some way make the the message Uh, more exciting to people, more attractional to people. I mean drama. I mean skits. Well, there's even one time we had a few dancers. It was, I'm kind of embarrassed to tell you that now. And people love that. And people were excited about that. But I want to tell you this. The truth of God doesn't have to be enhanced. The Word of God, we don't have to get creative about the Word of God or the worship of God. Worship needs to be done well. But understand, we have boundaries. These are the God-given things that worship is to entail. And when we start getting creative and adding in other things, we get in trouble, as you always find in the Old Testament and the New Testament. They got creative at Mount Sinai. And what did they do? They made a golden calf for Pete's sake. And as a result, and it wasn't to do away with Jehovah God, it was to enhance the worship of Jehovah God. But as a result of the golden calf debacle, some 3,000 people lost their lives. Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, chosen by God to help lead worship, got creative and they decided we'll offer this other fire to the sacrifice, what the Bible calls strange fire. And God was so ticked off about the... I don't know if your God gets ticked off, but my God does. God got so ticked off about that, he sent down fire from heaven and burned them to a crisp right there in front of their daddy and Moses and everybody else. In the New Testament, Paul had to write corrective letters to the Colossians, the Colossian church, which was a great church. And when you read that letter, there's wonderful truths about uh, about who God is. But God had to rebuke them for their will worship. That's what it's called in the King James, will worship worship. You know what that means? That means self-made worship. That means you got a little too creative with what I prescribed, and you started adding in your elements to make it more entertaining or to update it or whatever to it, and you went astray. Man, if you want to read a corrective letter, read what he wrote to the Corinthians. Man, those people, they developed an attitude of anything goes. When it comes to their exercise of spiritual gifts. And he had to reign them in. And also when they observed the Lord's Supper. He said listen you've made that something that it's not supposed to be. You got creative. And it's not good. In fact instead of honoring God it dishonors God. So God has a pattern for worship. That was very strictly prescribed in the Old Testament. And in the New, the pattern of worship, the liturgy, our order of worship, is more open, but it involves these things right here. Let me kind of walk you through the progression of, of worship in the Old Testament. We'll get to our passage, but it'll mainly be um, to, to show you in, in, in picture form and the blessing of Of how God worked in these worship services. These two that we'll read about. What about before the fall of man in the garden? What did worship look like? For Adam and Eve, who were sinless, who were in a perfect place, walking and talking face-to-face with God himself... What was worship look like? What did it look like? Well, you say, well, I don't know that they had worship. Well, they did. It it was given in some instructions from the Lord. In Genesis chapter 2 and verse 15, before the fall, this is what the Bible says. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. To work it and to. To keep it. His worship was his everyday life in the Garden of Eden. He worked the garden. There was work before the fall, so not all work is sinful. All right? He worked in the garden, and he kept the garden. Those two words, work and keep, could also be translated serve and guard to serve and guard the garden. Now, the only reason I mention that, that's not really a a, a real liturgical idea of worship, but did you know that those two words... To serve and to guard are exactly the same two Hebrew words. When the Lord was establishing at Mount Sinai all the details of the work of the Levitical priest. And he said that you Levites are to serve and to guard. The very same words he told Adam in the garden. Okay. So before the fall it was to serve and to garden, To work and to keep. After the fall, after Adam and Eve sinned, and now they are expelled from the garden. In fact, so much so that the Lord put an angel there with a flaming sword, daring them to ever try to come back. It was now off limits because of their disobedience. Now they had sons, Cain and Abel. And we see in Genesis chapter 4 another worship experience. We'll not read the passage, but you remember the story. And you draw from those first five or so verses of Genesis chapter 4, you, you, you find four things that you can observe and list uh, about worship. Number one, there was a set time for worship. They established some time. I don't know how, I don't know when it was. I don't know what day it was. But the Bible said, in the course of time, both Abel and Cain, came. Okay? So there was a set time. There was a designated place. They came to something. We don't know if it was an altar. We don't know if it was a hilltop. We don't know if it was underneath the tree. We don't know anything about that. But at a certain time, they came to a specific place. And they came in a prescribed form or a particular um, action of their worship. They brought an offering. They didn't come to a place of worship to see how God was going to bless them on that day. Remember, even they understood worship wasn't about them. It was about God. And we owe something to God. They brought an offering to God. There was also some kind of expected mindset, or maybe we should say heart set, a specific attitude that was to guide their worship. We know that God did not accept Cain's worship, and he did accept Uh, Abel's worship oftentimes we say that's because Abel's was a blood sacrifice Cain's was not but even later on God prescribed certain offerings to to God that didn't involve blood I believe the whole thing was that Abel had a different attitude than Cain did Abel came with a grateful heart offering to God Cain came with a uh, resentful heart With a grudging heart. He came to the worship service with a bad attitude. And God didn't receive his worship. And so we find that worship is evolving and maturing. In some way, they had the idea, we need to atone for our sinfulness. We need to do something to turn away God's wrath. We do this by bringing an offering and coming to worship. So then later, many years later, at Mount Sinai, this is after the flood, this is after God's called out Abram, and now we have uh, Jacob and his sons, and they've grown into a a nation of people, and God is constituting them as a nation at Mount Sinai. We've talked about Mount Sinai worship, because Hebrews 12 talks about that. It was very detailed. Now the pattern of worship got very complicated. There were priests with specific duties and lifestyles, even specific garments. The hem of the high priest's garment had to have blue pomegranates embroidered around the bottom. It was so detailed. His turban had to be a certain way. There had to be on his garments the Urim and the Thummim and and all of this and the ephod and all these things. There were specific sacrifices. If you are reading through the Bible, you're scratching your head wondering about all these sin offerings, guilt offerings, sanctification offerings, wave offerings. And it's just, man, oh, man. And then he prescribed a tabernacle, a place where God would come down and be among his people. And that tabernacle had to be built with such detail and such opulence and extravagance, beams of wood covered in pure gold, implements made of hammered gold and silver. This was just a forerunner to later something even far more grand, a temple in Jerusalem, it was built to very specific details, served and guarded by priests. As if that was not complicated enough, as several thousand years pass by, and we get to the time of Christ, Jesus is born into the world, and he comes into Jerusalem, and he comes into a religious scenario that is so much different, even than what was prescribed those years before. Because the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all these different sects, that's S-E-C-T-S, don't believe you're saying I said that other word in church. These sects, these groups, these uh, different, sometimes political but certainly religious uh, groups with their differences of opinion on certain things, with their different roles. Again, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the others. The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. Did you know that? That's one of their marks. And someone said the reason they, uh, because they didn't believe in the resurrection, that was what made them sad. You see? But anyway, I digress. By the time Jesus comes along, they have made the glorious details that God had given them out Mount Sinai, as complicated as they were, they had made that even far more burdensome. Now there was nothing joyous in worship at all. It was overbearing. It was a weight that could not be held up by the average man. All these man-made regulations that a typical Jew, every single day that he lived, didn't have 10 commandments to follow. He had 613 specific commandments he was supposed to follow. And many of them, again, man Made, but told that this is the only way to God is to keep all these commandments. So you see what happens when man gets a hold of religion. He makes it into something different. Now we have two scenes, and because we haven't read the scriptures, doesn't mean we're just now getting to the message. You've already heard at least half of it, more. We have two scenes of showing you what needs to happen in worship. Two glorious scenes. And the first one is Isaiah 6. Open your Bible there if you haven't done so already. And I'll tell you right up front rather than at the end. This is the word of the Lord. So thanks be to God for it. Listen. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, that is a particular uh, type of angel. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that was taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then I said, here I am. Send me. In a time of national mourning. In a time of national emergency. At the death of their mostly godly king, Uzziah. Who had led Israel for more than 50 years. In this great time of national darkness and fear and questions, in this time of great difficulty, Isaiah saw the Lord as never before. It's an amazing worship scene. Let me walk through it again and kind of detail it for you. Verses 1 through 3, Isaiah saw the Lord What did he see? Well, the Lord was on a throne. He was high and lifted up. He was surrounded and attended by angelic beings. And he was worshipped by the hosts of heaven. What a glorious scene. He didn't see the Lord casually he didn't see the Lord and say, man, look at that. He saw the Lord and it blew him away because verse 4 and 5 said, when he saw the Lord as the Lord truly is, then Isaiah saw himself as he truly was. You would think after seeing the Lord like that, That this might have been some kind of ecstatic experience. That maybe he would have jumped for joy and spoken in tongues and did all kinds of other things. Maybe he would have wanted to high-five an angel just so he can tell Mrs. Isaiah about it later. But when he saw the Lord as he truly was, he saw himself as he truly was. He was humbled. Worship of God should humble you and me. Folks, we need to come back to the heart of worship, as the song says. Because much that is done in the name of worship today exalts man, is designed to please you, is designed to attract you. And to make you feel okay about yourself. But when Isaiah encountered the Lord, what were his words? Woe is me. You know what that means? It means I am undone. We might say it this way. I'm coming apart at the seams here. This is blowing me away. All my thoughts of myself, all my thoughts of my world around me is changed. How did he describe it? He said, woe is me. He said, I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. He was a prophet, a faithful, good prophet of God for Pete's sake. But he said, I'm a man of unclean lips. And I live among a nation of people of unclean lips. I am a sinner and I live in the midst of sinful people. Understand, he could only see himself accurately because he saw God's holiness. If all we see is each other and compare ourselves with each other there are some people that are going to make me feel less of myself because I think they look nicer or they seem to be smarter or they surely are closer to God but by comparing ourselves with ourselves it will leave me looking for others that I see as being less of me so that I can feel better about me and Paul comes along and tells us that if we compare ourselves with ourselves we are the most sinful and foolish people alive. God compares you to one person and that is himself. And when we see God for who he is we'll see ourselves for who we are now if it had just left there and if religion just left off there as many practices of religion and worship services do today it just leaves people feeling sticky but he didn't stop there why because verse six and seven the Lord gave him cleansing it came in the form of an angel taking tongs and picking up a red hot coal off of the altar and coming and burning his lips. Well, bless your heart. That would be fun, wouldn't it? Now, did that literally happen to Isaiah? Or was that just a spiritual description? I don't know. But I do know this. It was a mark of cleansing and forgiving. And what did he say? Notice the twofold part. My guilt is taken away and my sin is forgiven. Guilt, that is the human part of sin. Guilt and shame. He took away my guilt and my shame. But he didn't just do that. He did that by, first of all, by atoning for my sins. Atonement is what Jesus accomplished on the cross with his shed blood. The blood makes an atonement for the soul. What is the idea of an atonement? The word atonement means a covering. So he covered my sin with his blood. They saw the Atonement in the Old Testament, the sacrifices of the goats and the rams and the bulls. We know later it's taken care of by Jesus. But God made an atonement for his sins. So his sin was taken away in God's sight. His sin was taken away in the guilt of it in his sight. And then after that, that joyous experience of grace, he was commissioned The Lord speaks here for the first time. And what does he say? Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Isaiah freshly cleansed of his guilt and shame and sin. Isaiah, after seeing the glory of God, said, I know somebody. Let me go and see if I can get them to go for you. No. He said, Here am I. Send me. I've got a message to tell. I've got a story to tell. So he was commissioned. God speaks, Isaiah volunteers. It gives us this key truth, and it is a key truth that true spirit led worship always leads to mission. To mission. If what God has done for you when he saved your soul and something that through our order of worship, our liturgy, our pattern for worship should remind you every single week of what God has done for you, that should cause you and me to be willing to say, I've got something to tell people who do not know the Lord. Here am I, Lord, send me. And folks, if worship doesn't encourage you and lead you and help prompt you and prepare you to do that, then worship is not yet what it needs to be. Almost 800 years later, the apostle whom Jesus loved, who is that? John, the apostle John, the one described in the Bible as the one whom Jesus loved. Is standing on a rock in the midst of the Aegean Sea. This rock, this little island, is called Patmos. And he has been exiled to this, quote, God forsaken place as a result of his love, loyalty, faithfulness, and devotion to Christ. Psalm payoff, right? You stay loyal to Jesus. You do his work for years. You're faithful to put your life at risk to spread his gospel. You never waver in your loyalty, your love, and your devotion. And what does it get you? It got Peter crucified upside down. It got James, the half-brother of the Lord, speared to death, even as the pastor of the Lord's church in Jerusalem. It got the other disciples, all, dying martyrs' deaths in places like Upper Europe. European countries, we would call them today, or as far away to the east as India. It got John exiled to Patmos, a fate worse than death. But remember, remember that our life journey and our difficult experiences and our disappointments and our pain is part of the pathway to meaningful worship, right? That's what it was for Jacob. That's what it was for John as well. So how did John respond to his new assignment to Patmos? this God-forsaken place, he is going to find it's not really God-forsaken. It's God-full. It's God-full. Revelation chapter 1, I begin reading in verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. Now I'm just going to pause right there and discontinue the uh, the rest of that reading in chapter one, he names the seven churches of Asia that this letter is going to be sent to. And then uh, John describes the Lord in verses 12 through 16. It's an amazing description. He sees the Lord just like Isaiah saw the Lord, but he describes more the Lord's dress and, and his voice and his hair and all of these things. And then after receiving this vision and receiving the messages to the seven churches, if you flip over to chapter 4, you find this worship service continues. After this I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet referring back to Jesus in chapter 1 said come up here and I will show you what, what must quickly take place after this. And at once now listen, at once I was in the Spirit and behold a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. Well, what a word this is. Because John had a very similar experience to Isaiah. 800 years apart. That should not surprise us. Our God is the ancient of days. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. What did John see specifically? Note this. He saw an open door to heaven, and he saw an occupied throne. When all of the world was saying the one sitting on the throne is Emperor Diocletian in Rome. When everything looked like the devil is in control. John said, I saw a throne and the Lord was on it. That means he's in control. It means he's sovereign. It means everything happening in the world, good or bad, and in my life, pleasant or painful, that all of this is by the the definite giving of God for us, that Jesus is still doing his work. And guess what? The door to heaven is still open, and it's still open today. It's still receiving people who will give their heart and life to Jesus Christ. God is in control. But as I begin to draw to a close today, I look back at chapter one of Revelation. John had that amazing vision of an open door and an occupied throne. And I want you to notice why he had that great vision and experience. In chapter 1, he says, I was on the island called Patmos. In the very next verse, he says, I was in the Spirit. And we say, what's up, John? You can't be in two places at one time. You were on Patmos, you were in the Spirit? And he says, yes. I can, and so can you. You see, Patmos was his earthly circumstances. He had no control over that. He had no choice about that. Others who controlled his life, who were really themselves being controlled by God, others made the decision for him. He was exiled to Patmos. And in Patmos, or on Patmos, he was in the spirit. This is his spiritual circumstances. Now, follow me here. Like John, like Isaiah, we all have our earthly circumstances, and we all have our spiritual circumstances, One of them we have no control over. The other we do have control over. One of those is decided by others largely or certainly affected by others. The other one is determined by us and us alone. Your physical circumstances are greatly affected and influenced and controlled by others. You may be at a place in life today you never planned to be, but it's the way life has turned out. You don't have any control over that. All you have control over is your response to that. But you do have control over your spiritual circumstances. You see, John was in a place, exiled to this awful place. Having been cast off as a result of his faithfulness to God, he could have gotten bitter. He could have gotten angry. He could have said on the Lord's day, well, there's nobody here but me. What does it matter now? He could have said, I'll just stay home and watch this on TV. But instead... He went to church. He went to church. He went to church. He was both the usher, the greeter, the song leader, the preacher, and took up his own offering. But the most important thing was, he was in the Spirit. He made that by his own choice. Beloved, what a worship service does to you, or in you, or for you, whatever happens in your life, this hour and 15 minutes, now hour and 20 minutes, every single week, isn't up to whether or not God decides to show up. God is already here. It's not determined by whether or not... This worship leader picked out the songs that you like best or not? Because it's not that that's going to decide what this is for you. It's not if the preacher kept your attention and tickled your ears and told you things you wanted to hear and things that made you happy. It's whether or not you make the decision To be in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. I can guarantee you that we will do our best to plan, design our liturgy, our order of worship. So that it presents to you an accurate picture of the gospel. And that it should look like this. That it begins with adoration. It begins with lifting up your eyes to see the Lord, recognizing His character. Which causes you, when you see Him like that, to see yourself as sinful. That it leads to confession of sin. Acknowledging our sin. That it declares the assurance of God's grace that your sin has been atoned for and forgiven by the Lord, which should lead you and me to thanksgiving for God's provision, and also lead us to a time of petition, of prayer, for God's blessing on our lives and the lives of others around us that will always include a time of instruction from God's Word that's true to the Scripture and that will always end with a benediction and blessing, particularly of gospel and for gospel faithfulness. As you leave here blessed and as you leave here, be faithful to the gospel. Why? That the pattern for worship, that that pattern right there, Is an expression of the gospel story every single week. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for what we see about worship through your word all the way from the Garden of Eden till the end of time. Thank you that we live in a day of grace. Thank you today that while we have great freedom and that we have uh, great liberty, we don't have liberty to make up what worship looks like, that we're faithful to your word, that we're faithful to the instructions from your word, and that every week we present the gospel to people who so desperately need it. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Our hearts desires that you grow and understand the direction God has for you in your life. We hope that by listening today, you are one step closer to discovering that for yourself. If you live in Northwest Arkansas and are looking for a church to call your own, we invite you to reach out to us at Calvary as we study and serve together. We meet for worship at 1030 on Sunday mornings at 1410 North Porter Road in Fayetteville, Arkansas. If you wish to find out more information about Calvary Church or simply contact us, you can do that through our Facebook page or at calvaryfayetteville.com. Until next time, remember that God, His Word, and His people can provide direction for life.